0: Well, good morning again. If you've interacted at all with popular forms of Christianity, say the kind that you see all the time in Facebook and all that, you almost certainly have come across someone using the cliche that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Now, part of the issue here is defining what a religion is and... If by the word religion we mean a collection of rituals and institutions and formulas whereby you can make yourself acceptable to God, well, then in that case, Christianity is not a religion, certainly of not, uh, not of that sort. I do think that's a bad definition of religion, but if that's what you mean, I can swallow hard and say Christianity is not that kind of a religion. But even if you define religion in that way, I would still disagree with the sentiment that Christianity can be reduced to a relationship. The entry point, of course, into Christianity is the establishment of a faith relationship of the believer with God and Christ. But that's not the totality of the Christian faith. Christianity, of course, involves a robust uh, a ro- robust body of truth. And it's all contained in the Bible here. There's a careful organization of God's people and the church. A thoroughgoing ethical code. You know, these are the things that we're supposed to do. God expects us to live a certain way. There's a shared mission uh, that we all should engage in. And so in summary it's a, it's a comprehensive Christian worldview that as we walk along the, the path of 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 the Christian religion, we understand more and more to encompass every aspect of life. And the fact that all of these things together, uh, the fact is that all of these things together are what I think make a religion a religion. In fact, the English word religion, you can easily ascertain this in a dictionary, it's a term closely associated with the notion of relying or reliance. Um, Dependency. If I can define the term simply, religion is that very most seminal set of ideas upon which I rely in order to make sense of the world in which I live in. And that's what our religion is. Quickest way to discover what your religion is is to ask yourself a series of why questions until you have no fresh answers. This is what four-year-olds do all the time, right? Okay? They ask you why, why, why. And, and it's when you get to that point, if you happen to go through that whole sequence with them, when you get to the end and, and you, you say something like, well, it's just because that's the way it is, you know, or something of that nature, that you come to discover what your religion is. A few years ago, I taught this idea to a group of African men. They're substance, subsistence farmers with very little education. But I was able to do this with them, uh, even though they could not converse on scholarly topics. I mean, we could... We could start this discussion as to you know, you know, why electricity flows through the walls, and, 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 but, but these, these folks couldn't do any of that, and yet they were able to define their religion. I asked, you know, why do you plant seeds in a field? Well, I said, well, so that we can grow corn. Well, why do you need to grow corn? Well, because we need to have food. Well, why do we need to have food? So Well, so we can stay healthy and... Live long and be respected in the village. Why do you need to do that? Well, because that's the measure of success in our village. The path, path to honor in this life and in the next. Why is that? Well, this, this is because that's the way it is. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the way we do things around here. I would say I found their religion. Now, as Christians, we might ask, answer some of those questions quite similarly. Right? We could start out the sequence very similarly. But eventually, we need to divert our answers toward God. I remember when my boys were young. I remember going through this distinctly, going through this sequence more than once. And sometimes, I remember one time, I, I, I knew I didn't have time to get all the way through the sequence. So I, 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 I just said, okay, the answer is because God is and because he's given us the Bible. And that's why. Okay? Because that's where that sequence of answers always ended up uh, for us, because that was my religion. And we have, as Christians, a religion of such a sufficient nature that we can actually describe it as comprehensive. It's not only a religion, it is the religion. It's the only religion, really, that can boast perfect coherence, consistency, and completeness. So Christianity is... A relationship, certainly, but it is also a religion. And in the sermon this morning, we tried to tease out some of the foundations of the Christian worldview by defending the idea here that God created the entire universe, and he did it a certain way. Uh, we also know from the scriptures that he did this swiftly, recently, and immediately. You can really come to no other conclusion if you read carefully. Uh, the cre- creation accounts that appear in the Scriptures. And we find that he did this with a vast network of intersecting and harmonious beings, processes, laws, all coming together, uh, and the flourishing of his creatures and the glory of his God results. And CBC is committed to this idea. Sometimes it's given the name Young Earth Creationism. And By this, we effectively mean the following points. One, God created the world and all that is in it, six days. Secondly, that this took place thousands of years ago and not billions. Number three, that God specifically created the first man, Adam, apart from evolutionary processes, and that his sin resulted in the many problems that we have in the world today. And then fourthly, that at some point early in man's history, there was a violent, catastrophic, and worldwide flood that is the principal explanation For the fossil record, contours of geology, and other natural phenomena. Okay, and so that's that's what we mean by young Earth creationism. It's a rather unpopular set of beliefs out there, and that's because fallen man has, as his primary goal, the exchange of truth for a lie and the worship of the creature rather than the Creator. That's what Romans one tells us, right? That's that's the goal of unbelieving mankind. So what kind of alternative religions do people come up with? Well, as we move towards an answer to this question, I'd like to begin with a modest proposal that this is not really a scientific question. Okay? Instead, the answer comes from the field of philosophy, or even perhaps more fundamentally, it's an answer that comes from the field of religion. We're not asking here how Things work in the world, but why? What, what is the energy? What is the what is the reason behind it all? You know, I could begin. I thought about bringing a, a ball into the uh, pulpit here, but it, it. I, you know, I'm not. I'm not, I don't usually use object lessons. Maybe I should. And I had a ball in my hand, and I drop it. What would happen if I let go of the ball? It would. You know, it would fall. Okay. So, and so I'm glad we all believe in the law of gravity here, okay? Now, the second question we might ask is why will the ball fall when I drop it? Now, you could, if some of you perhaps are scientifically inclined here, you got a little bit of a physics mind, you could come up with answers that involve scientific laws, formulas, involving mass and gravitational constants, force, acceleration, resistance, etc., but that really is the answer to the question, how it works. What we're really after today is why it works. Okay? No amount of science can tell us why gravity works, or even whether gravity will always work. This is really a matter of philosophy and faith. And some of the options uh, are, are evident. Some of them are a little bit more obscure. Now, if you're not a scientist, you probably don't answer this question in a scientific way. You probably have a very simple answer like this. Well, in my personal experience, whenever I've dropped a ball, it's always gone down. And this is sort of a subset of a, of a, of a, of a larger philosophy of life, which we call humanism, that says that collectively, humanity has an enormous data set of dropping balls and the ball always falls. And how can all those people possibly be wrong? And so we have empiricism, and we've got humanism in view. And so that's, 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 that can become a religion. We are the measure of all things. Now, perhaps you might decide that personal experience isn't enough. And so you might apply a little bit more scientific rigor. We've observed it. We've measured it. We've quantified the laws of gravity. We've documented its constancy with formulas and gravitational constants. We have moved from empiricism to inductivism i have a large and consistent data set that is proven beyond reasonable doubt the existence of the law of gravity and then once we've accepted those laws we can actually use those laws to predict we can make further deductions about the physical sciences and that's what we call rationalism okay and together Inductivism and rationalism alternate to give us what we know as the scientific method, right? That's basically what we have. Now, if you're really sophisticated, you might know that inductivism never gives certainty. It tells us that something is probably true, but not certainly true. Now, we always live, in any scientific endeavor, with the possibility that there might be exceptions. Just because the ball has fallen the last 10 10 million times we dropped it, doesn't mean that next time, necessarily, that it will. That it will fall. It doesn't prove anything. In fact, this is why scientists are insistent. That they don't really deal with truth, right? They deal with fact, okay? And in some sense, they're right. Okay. In some sense, I accept this. Uh, They are saying that this this is the operational principle that we work with it has always worked, but because we're scientists, we never deal in the realm of truth. That's the department of theology. We deal in the realm of fact. And, and usually that's enough for most fields of scientific inquiry. As long as it happens 10 million times in a row, we can be pretty confident that it's going to work next time. And this is what we call uniformitarianism, that the present is the key to the past, or... I theorize that uh, gravity works uniformly today because it has always worked. And as a result, I have no reason to think that it will stop working tomorrow. And this faith axiom called uniformitarianism is another pillar of modern science. One, incidentally, that's very important when it comes to the study of first things, the science of origins. Now, Some upstart might say, well, do you know this for sure? Do you classify the law of gravity as truth? And the answer would be no. That's just our operational theory. And so far it hasn't failed us. And in most of what we do in life, that's all we need. Which is why we can, as believers, work side by side with unbelievers because we agree that it works. We might disagree about why it works, but most of the time it doesn't really matter why it works. It just matters that we agree on how it works. And so we can work together with unbelievers. But at this point, you might be wondering if it's even possible to have certainty at all, and some believe you can't. These are called skeptics, even agnostics. They say, we don't know whether the law of gravity will keep on working, but until until we learn otherwise, we'll keep soldiering on. Others are dissatisfied with the uncertainty of skepticism and propose the existence of some sort of a natural ordering system. That works consistently. Some see it impersonally. They call it chance or fate. Others tend to personify it. They call it naturalism or even give it family names like Father Time, Mother Nature, right? Those who hold to fatalism and naturalism don't know why gravity always works, but they take comfort in the constancy of natural law and submit to it. And then finally... We have those who argue that a divine mind has created, established, and maintains the laws of his universe, and we call this supernaturalism or theism. Okay? And this is what we as Christians believe. Now, no matter where you fall in this discussion, and I hope everybody here falls into the last category here, uh, and perhaps you would say, you know, I, I left some out, and no, that's fine. You know, I, I, I recognize that there's lots of other isms that are out there that sort of fill in the cracks. Uh, So uh, if you have another ism that's your little niche idea, that's fine. I I don't deny the possibility of that. The fact is that if we're going to do science or do stuff in this world, we must do these things from the standpoint of philosophy or religion. We do what we do from a standpoint of a worldview. We've selected this from the marketplace of ideas, and it legitimates what I'm doing. And in, in this sense, all people are religious even those who claim to be atheists. They, they reject the idea of a personal God, perhaps, but they have a very robust set of pre- uh, presuppositions to explain why things work. In fact, sometimes atheists are you know, sort of ahead of the curve on that. Christians have a religion, too. We all do. Now, I've thought long and hard about my own religious presuppositions, and I admit freely after the years I still tweak it occasionally. But let me summarize what I I believe. I believe that the reason for everything, why science works, why the world exists, why I exist, even the list of options I entertain when I hear a bump in the night, right? Is that the Christian God has created the universe in which I live, has established the laws that govern this universe, has revealed to me truly and plainly His expectations and purposes for me and for His universe in the Christian scriptures, and He will hold me accountable for how I live in this universe. That's my religion. And so when we as Christians are asked the various why questions and the sequences above, we have distinct answers. Why does gravity work? Well, ultimately because God made it that way. Why? Well, because God is God. And like we find in that sequence in Romans chapter 9, who are you to question? He doesn't answer to anyone. That's his call. I need to trust him. Why do I plant seeds occasionally? Very occasionally. I used to do it a little bit more. I I wasn't very good at it. Why do I grow crops? Why do I eat the harvest? Well, because God has invited us to do that. In fact, commanded us to do these kinds of things, in the Dominion mandate, right? Why? Because he's God, and that's his prerogative. What I'd like to do here is to offer three key passages from the Scriptures that sort of tees out the implications of this idea that we have a religion that is seated in the God as the creator. I want to start here with Proverbs 1, verse 7. It's rather a short verse here, but rather stunning in its claim. It says here, in verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now we're accustomed to seeing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which we applied last hour as the application of knowledge. Okay, so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That one we sort of nod with. But here, this goes a step further, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So how, do we, how, do, how can we defend that claim? It seems like it says almost too much because there's a lot of people out there, unbelievers, who know a lot, know a lot of data, not a lot of stuff. So how can we say here that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? Well, the Bible informs us in Genesis that when Adam and Eve, the first humans, were created, they had a perfect life. In the very first chapter of the Bible, God told them he wanted to do stuff, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And I think we can, have all, we can find in, the, in, that, in those few words here all of the branches of science as we know them. Okay. And so they begin. Simply at first, they develop agricultural and horticultural skills. They organize a garden. But they wanted more. They wanted to be intellectually independent of God. Genesis 3 says they wanted to know more than God, and they wanted to know as God. That is, they wanted to be arbiters of what is. And it was on that day that humanity developed a godless way of doing stuff. We want to do it our way. They wanted to learn on their own without any guidance from God or any dependence on God. And the trend continues. But Proverbs 1 tells us that when we do this, we lose the operational, f- foundational operating principles of the world because the fear of the Lord is the philosophical starting point for knowledge. Stuff works because of God. Doesn't mean that unbelievers cannot do science. They can observe and document the same laws that we have, that he's installed in his universe. They make Much progress in every field of science. They know how stuff works, but they do lose sight of why. Certainly, the Bible doesn't tell us that all that can be known in all the fields of science are found in the Bible. So the fear of the Lord doesn't give us every datum of information. we, We don't learn from the Bible, for instance, how to fix my Hummer, or how to perform surgery, or extract energy from the planet without damaging it, right? But the fear of the Lord can do this one thing for us. It can plainly and simply tell us why science works. And this is a marked improvement on those expressions of modern science that cannot, at least by consistent appeal to their own system, tell us why their various disciplines work. We have truth. They have facts. And Incidentally, those facts may be correct, but they really have no foundational system that they can attach them to so that they can say, not only are these, these this, this knowledge utilitarian works for us, but actually that it is truth. Believers have that. And so we have truth that unbelievers cannot boast. Colossians 2, verses 3 and 8 says the same thing. In Christ, verse 3 says are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary, fundamental, philosophical principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. And again, this verse tells us, similarly, that all knowledge fits together in Christ Jesus and only makes sense as a whole if we have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. In these verses, Paul mentions the alternative, traditions of men, the rudimentary principles of the world, and he calls them empty, dark, and futile. Now, it does not mean they cannot be pragmatically used here and there to further fields of scientific inquiry for good ends, but in the field of theoretical science, the philosophical reason and basis for science, it remains very, very elusive. A scientist may stumble upon genuine facts, but he cannot, by his own, with his own scientific limitations and criteria, call those facts truth or have certainty in them. And so it is whenever believers do stuff, right? We first submit to what God has told us about the specific area of inquiry to be studied. Sometimes God tells us very little. Sometimes he tells us quite a bit. And, and sometimes he just tells us, you know, very little and go figure out how I put the universe together. And so we explore. That's one of the joys of being human. Sometimes God gives us very precise information. For instance, in the field of ethics, we get quite a bit more information than we do, say, in the, in the field of uh, n- nuclear science, right? In the field of ethic, God tells us why every culture on the planet has laws against murder and abuse. Every one. Laws with heightened penalties, when those crimes are perpetu- perpetuated against the vulnerable. Every society on earth has this. These laws persist in every human society, even though the prevailing theory of science tells us that we ought to eliminate the unfit. Almost every society of men has always said we need to protect those who are the most vulnerable and unfit, right? I mean, if, if you believe in evolutionary theater, theory, right, what should you do with the unfit? Well, they shouldn't survive. Because if we want the race to survive, the survival of the fittest is the way to that end. And so, uh, in evolutionary theory, there's actually a, a, an implication here, almost a suggestion here, that we should Engage in the elimination of the unfit. And yet, despite that theory being held broadly within society today, those laws persist. Why do those laws persist? Well, we as Christians have an answer. Scriptures tell us exactly why it is, because we have the law of God written upon our hearts. And we, and, and we can't help but sometimes listen to the voice of God. God never lets us take our theories and run with them so far uh, as to destroy his world. We saw we talked about that this morning in in, in uh, looking at Psalm 104, the study of ornithology, birds. We find out why birds sing. They sing to celebrate the happiness of divine provision for their needs. Now, we know that birds sing for other reasons too. Mark their territory, train their young. But in the beautiful morning, songs of especially the the, the songs especially of female birds are come to us with very little explanation. Uh, you can go on, go on the website and, and try and figure out why it is that especially female birds sing routinely. And it's, it's a great mystery. Nobody knows exactly why, but Psalm 104 tells us. We could go on and on, but what I really want to emphasize here is the science of origins. The Bible says that the world was created recently, and so we start with that assumption. The Bible says that there was a vast and catastrophic flood and so we start with that assumption. In the fact, the Bible gives us some very specific instruction on this very field of inquiry, and we find some very startlingly contemporary observations in how we should study our world. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll spend the balance of our time here this morning. In this book of Second Peter, Peter is defending for his readers the fact that Jesus is coming again. And it's, I, I mean, perhaps a little bit simplistic. Uh, but that seems to be the, the major concern here of this book, to establish the fact that Jesus is coming again, and he's meeting some resistance. And what we find here in chapter 3 is a specific expression of that resistance that we find in verses 3 to 13. He says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing the idea here of the second coming of Christ, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So do not forget this one thing, dear friend with the lord a day is like a thousand years a thousand years is a day the lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness instead he is patient with you done in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way what kind of people ought you be you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. That day will come and bring about the the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with the promises, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So again, he's trying to defend the fact that Jesus is coming again. And he says that there will come a day when there will be resistance to this idea. There will be scoffers, he says. Those who scoff at this idea. And, and it says here, they follow their own evil, lustful desires. And so the emphasis is here on their own desires, an insertion that seems to draw attention to a contrast. They have no loyalties but to themselves, and to obey no law except their own identity and desires. So God, in using the words of Romans chapter 1, has given them over to the desires, the sinful desires of their hearts, to debased thoughts, to debauched passions, and their attitude is that of scoffing, withering, condescending mockery that drips with contempt. You believe that? It's a kind of intellectual arrogance that makes us cower a bit. In fact, if you read in the works of St. Augustine, St. Augustine, excuse me, (laughs) we find here uh, that he captures this sentiment 1,600 years ago after he has set forth what is really a literal understanding of Genesis 1. He muses this, and I quote, "'If I make such a statement,' I fear I shall be laughed at by those who have scientific knowledge of these matters. 1,600 years ago he was saying this. If I make the case that Genesis 1 says all that it seems to say, then I'm going to be mocked. And so there is a tendency for us to pull our punches, right? And so today, just as today, he chafed at the snickering and the incredulity of those who scoff. The patronizing bemusement, right, of people who look at us and say, you believe that? And so our arguments here in defense of Christ's lordship and his authority are questioned. Because these scoffers think that their arguments are better. They think they're foolproof. In fact, they give us their religious sentiment, so the promise that Jesus is going to come again and call us to account in, and, and judge us in his righteous fury, that's silly. How do I know? Well, in a word, because of this idea of uniformitarianism. Everything goes on as it has from the beginning. That's it. That's the poker hand they're going to hold. They think it's strong enough to bet every last chip. That's the presupposition on which they base everything. And on the strength of that bedrock principle, they argue in sequence. God isn't my creator. God is not going to be my judge. And therefore, in the middle, he's never going to be my Lord. I will not submit to him as my savior. And it's in the face of this sequence that Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter gives an answer. They forget something, he says. They forget that the universe does not go on in an endless succession of sameness. It had a sudden beginning described for us in the first chapter of Genesis. And and that's what they're forgetting. The sudden creation. And this is what the scoffers are forgetting. Peter's not alone in targeting... Creation in his apologetics. Paul does the same thing in Acts chapter 17 when he tells the Areopagus council that their major problem is that they were ignorant of this critical fact that they are God's offspring. And they all descended from one man, Adam. And for this reason, they failed to recognize that they are subject to judgment. And the astonishing thing that Paul keeps saying over and over is that they really do know. They actually know that God is. They actually know that those who do these things are worthy of death, and yet they keep doing them because they forget. Or, if I may, they deliberately exchange the truth of God for a lie. Worship and serve the creature rather than creator. And give hearty approval to the practice of this long list of sins. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer concludes his worldview study with what statement? Remember your creator in the days of your youth, while there's still time to reconfigure the way you think and how you structure your lives. And so Peter turns here to critique the religion of these individuals, these scoffers. And he critiques it in two ways, first on its own terms, and then secondly, from the standpoint of the biblical worldview. The first thing he does is sort of attacks the the internal consistency of their own argument. He observes that the religion of the scoffers is astonishingly inconsistent. Really, he says, everything continues as it has from the beginning. Well, then how do you explain the beginning? Because the beginning is an exception to your rule. In fact, modern science even admits this in large part. I know there's not a single theory about the origins of the universe, but the Big Bang still holds rather significant sway. In other words, godless science that claims to be uniformitarian actually begins to an exception to its own rules in order to establish their religion. And Peter offers a superior explanation. God started it all. God started it all. And then shortly thereafter, he sent an enormous flood that incidentally explains much of the world that we see around us. And in keeping with Peter's purposes, this must necessarily have been an extraordinary flood. Or, Peter's point is lost. This was no local flood similar in scope to other floods. It was a flood that qualitatively and quantitatively is distinct from anything else that we've ever had in this world. And that's the whole point of the rainbow, right? To remind us that there will never be a flood like that one. Things don't continue as they have from the beginning. There are key exceptions along the way, and he details this one and a couple of others here along the way here of of. of occasions where God stepped into the world and, and flexed his muscles. He said he did this at the beginning. He did this with the flood. Elsewhere in Peter, he talks about other events in which God sort of steps in. And then Paul, ma- Peter makes the point, he's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. And any proposed worldview that does not account for These intrusions of the divine, these supernatural intrusions of God, is inadequate, deficient, and fatal. And then he comes to his main point. The world will end the very same way that it began supernaturally, suddenly, cataclysmically. Just as God started it, he's going to end it. God is the creator, God is the judge. And the sobering question that he leaves for our rumination is this. Since all of this is true, how shall we then live? How shall we live? What kind of people ought we to be? So let's summarize here what we've picked up here. First, we're all religious, right? We're all religious. We all have a, sen- a seminal set of ideas upon which we rely to make sense of our world. We're all religious. Second point, the Christian religion boils down to the premises that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has revealed himself inerrantly in the Christian scriptures. Thirdly, all persons who reject the Christian religion and pursue other alternatives may be able to figure out how stuff works. They're never able to figure out why. Fourthly, we need not wilt when they scoff at us because we have a perfectly coherent and comprehensive worldview seated in the knowledge of God, our creator. And then fifthly, we have an urgent message for them to remember their creator now before he assumes his role as their judge. And so they need to make their immediate appeal now for him to be their savior and submit to him as their terrible sovereign, but also as their benevolent Lord. I think all of that flows here from the fact that God has created the world and all that, it is, all that is in it in a way uh, that is directed towards human flourishing and also for the glory ultimately of God himself. We have five minutes if there's questions. Otherwise, we'll cut this off and move to prayer. I don't know if it's, do we normally have questions? <laughs> yes, sir. Partly. Yeah, I think partly that is it. And, and the fact that we have what sometimes are called chrono genealogies that, that seem to leave... In many spots, no gaps, okay? So-and-so lived a certain number of years. He had children, lived a certain number of years, and died. And so you get, you get all the, those years. And so I think there is. At the same time, we recognize that there are, uh, there are some gaps. I mean, uh, we, we find, uh, for instance, that uh, Terah, uh, the, uh, the father of, of Abraham, uh, lived 75 years, and then he begat three sons. And we find, actually, as you work your way through the Scripture, that Abraham doesn't come until like 50 years later. Okay, so he's one of three, and so there's 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 small gaps that are built in. Uh, uh, Luke uh, has has adds a name to the to the to the list of gene- his names. Uh, Canaan, and so there there is there's, there's room in there for at least some wiggling. Some I, I, I'm not a a, a precise six thousand year old Earth guy. But at the same time, I don't think we have in there room for vast eons of millions and billions of years. That's part of it. I actually have an article if you want to look look at the DBTS website. I have a I have a thing on the age of the earth if you wanna if you want to pursue the longer answer to that. Don't know the day or the time, but is there that tells us a that we tell us we're, we're maybe to than the Well, we're getting closer every day. <laughs> no, I, I, I honestly don't see that there are specific signs of his coming. Uh, we do know things are going to get worse and worse, but, you know, I think, we've, I, I think Christians have, have looked at the world for the last 2,000 years and have said things are getting worse and worse and how bad are they going to get? We don't know. I, I don't know that we have any ability to say with any sort of confidence that it's around the corner. It it could be. I'd like to think it is, but I don't think we have any signs of the coming that are. I would Oh, of yeah. I don't. I, it doesn't seem like he's giving. Uh, I mean, he he. I mean, in his in his. Daniel 9 we have this 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 gap of you know these 490 years and the, he accounts for 483 and then there's just sort of this gap before the next seven which which wraps up human history um, but there there's no indication as how long that gap is going to be yeah. so we have people that are saying they were calling it a day you know it's supposed to be but Yeah well, and yeah, and I think that's part of that's part of the it's part of the message here. We don't know when it's going to happen, and so we need to be constantly and always prepared. Uh, if if we knew, I think if we knew the day, that actually would be bad news for us. <laughs> yes, sir. Right. In fact, more than just in a sense, I think the the plain definition of of a religion, Christianity, is a religion. Um, It's only if you misdefine the word that you can say that it's not, honestly. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Number one I'll read them. We're all religious. That is, we all have a seminal set of ideas upon which we rely to make sense of the world. Number two, the Christian religion boils down to the promise that God, the Father, the the premise that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has revealed himself inerrantly in the Christian scriptures. Thirdly, that all people who reject the Christian religion and pursue other alternatives may be able to figure out how stuff works, but never why. Number four, We need not wilt when people scoff at us because we have a perfectly coherent and comprehensive worldview seated in the knowledge of our Creator. And then finally, we have an urgent message for them to remember their Creator now before He assumes His role as their judge. Well, now our time is up. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful for Your grace to us. We thank You for the details at the beginning and end of Your Testament. Uh, to us, your testimony in scripture that uh, creates the bookends and uh, the certainty uh, that is attached to the Christian faith. And Lord, I ask that we may take it to heart. In your name we pray. Amen.